For those of you who weren't around some two years ago, my name is Josh. I was a pastor here at Bridgetown where I worked also as an embedded church planner before leaving to begin Van City Church uh, just north of here. Um, uh, Van City is, just like you guys, working through the practices, and when we aren't, we're also making our way through the Gospel of Matthew. So it's my distinct privilege to begin your return to the Sermon on the Mount this evening. Now, uh, John Mark is presently in California, having just attended an early premiere of Star Wars Episode Eight. Um, and this, of course, means that he will set to work spoiling the movie for all of you in the immediate future. As, as much as I regularly miss being here with you guys on Sundays, Star Wars spoiler season is actually a great time not to be at Bridgetown. Um, and, you know, John Mark, if you're listening to this recording, I apologize for the possible decline in attendance in the weeks to come. But I also encourage you to repent of your sin. Stop doing that. <laughs> If it isn't obvious, I'm using humor to win you to my side before I begin a very sobering teaching on money and possessions. Uh, so <laughs> Star Wars jokes aside, I'm convinced John Mark invited me here this particular, for this particular passage so that you might take issue with me rather than him. Um, and that's fine. Feel free to do that. Further complicating this issue is the, the dry manner in which I often joke. So I just invite you guys to simply assume the best. You know, if you're getting frustrated, just assume maybe he's being funny or whatever. But take me seriously. Are you guys ready? Yes. Great. Thank you. In March of 1993, South African photojournalist Kevin Carter traveled camera in hand to Sudan to document a country ravaged by famine. And one morning, Kevin happened upon a starving toddler who had doubled over from exhaustion on the long trek to the nearest feeding center. And uh, ever the man of his craft, Kevin knelt before the scene and he lifted his camera. And just before the shutter snapped, a vulture landed several feet in the distance with its black eyes locked on a potential meal. And so, Kevin took the picture, he gathered up his equipment, and he walked away. The photograph, titled The Vulture and the Little Girl, was later sold to the New York Times and printed in newspapers all around the world. In fact, the following year, Kevin Carter was awarded the Pulitzer Prize for this frozen moment of suffering he had committed to film in Sudan. A few months after that, he drove his truck to a river where he used to play as a child. He strung a length of hose from the exhaust pipe to the passenger window, and he died of carbon monoxide poisoning at the age of 33. Like many suicides, Kevin left a note his last words to the world, and in it he wrote, I am haunted by the vivid memories of killings and corpses and anger and pain of starving or wounded children. And though the image appeared on the screen for only a brief series of moments, I suspect a great many of you, whether you'd seen the picture previously or not, will be similarly haunted by Kevin's photograph. And the reasons, I think, are fairly obvious. You know, even in the coldest among us, tend to feel a pang of discomfort at the sight of abject human suffering. But I wonder if, in a room like this, on an evening like this, when fixed in the midst of shopping season and gifts and parties and luxury, I wonder if that frozen moment of suffering alone is what makes us cringe and sigh and shake our heads and close our eyes. Or is it also our knowing that while most, if not all of us, are not presently starving to death, elsewhere in the world, a child can collapse in the dust with a hooded vulture skulking in the distance? Now, believe me when I say this setup isn't at all intended as a guilt trip or some cheap emotional tactic. I'm actually interested in the implications of having money and having stuff. And I want to talk about what it means to have a lot when most of the world has very little. And I want to talk about what having a lot does to our humanity. 
And we'll get at all these ideas by way of the scriptures. Now, Matthew, as you know, if you've been here for a little bit, is one among four first century biographies of this controversial figure called Jesus of Nazareth. Beginning in chapter 5 of Matthew's biography of Jesus, this ever provocative teacher begins to offer what is essentially his manifesto for life in what he called the kingdom of God. And even a brief sampling of the topics broached provides more than enough to make every one of us stirred and frustrated and inspired and convicted and compelled because Jesus talks about anger and he correlates anger with murder. He talks about lust and he correlates lust with adultery. He talks about integrity. He talks about nonviolence and love for enemies. And then Jesus begins to warn his disciples against doing good things, acts of generosity and spirituality, but motivated by the approval of other people. And from there, Jesus will address something that, like false righteousness, will corrupt his disciples if they do not embody a better way. So, let's look at Matthew chapter 6 and begin reading in verse 19. Jesus says, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and vermin destroy, and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moths and vermin do not destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also." And the implications of this small text are obviously quite incredible. So let's take a closer line-by-line look as we figure out what the heck this means for you and I this evening. Now, several scholars argue that the opening line, do not store up for yourselves, is perhaps better translated as stop storing up for yourselves, meaning Jesus' words are less of a hypothetical warning and more of a command for his disciples to stop doing things one way so that they might begin to do them differently. And that command deals with treasures on earth. Treasures are, in essence, the things that we keep because of the value that we place on them. To have treasure is really part and parcel of the human condition. Even small children who cannot fathom wealth or the very poor who have none still know what it means to treasure something. You know, even Tom Hanks had Wilson. And Jesus here mentions the types of treasures that, in his words, are on earth. And by this, he means the tangible or sometimes intangible things that we tend to treasure, but that are, by their very nature, finite and perishable. Money is the obvious example. Possessions is a close second. Um, But I think this even includes certain types of relationships and reputations and careers or even your precious soul-sucking Instagram account will go the way of MySpace and Friendster eventually. You guys remember Friendster? It was a thing? Oh, you do. If you don't, then hey, let that be an encouragement to you. That's where Instagram's going eventually. They are finite because, Jesus says, they can be destroyed or eroded by time. They will be devoured by moths and vermin. They will be stolen by thieves. Some of your Bibles translate that second word as rust rather than vermin. And it probably does refer to an animal pest rather than rust, but really the word image works either way. If it's rust, it destroys precious metal and currency. If it's a pest, on the other hand, it could be like a nibbling mouse that destroys rich fabrics or a louse that destroys a protective chest packed with valuables. What the moths and the vermin will do to your treasure is likely translated in your Bibles as destroy. And the Greek word is aphonizizo. It more literally means to make something disappear. And this is, more, this is about more than just damage done to your precious treasure, but your treasure on earth will actually be no more. 
it will disappear. By one means or another, destruction is coming for your treasure on earth. Moths and vermin will devour your precious stuff. Rust will eat it away. A thief will come in and steal it. And notice in the text, Jesus lists these less as possibilities and more as inevitabilities, meaning you can't take it with you, as the idiom goes. And Jesus' audience actually knew this well enough. Banking, in its embryonic form anyway, did exist in the first century. Um, but it was mostly inaccessible or untrustworthy to Jesus' audience. So instead, money was kept hidden throughout the home. And consequently, valuables were more vulnerable to decay or to loss or to theft. And strikingly, Jesus seems to describe them, describe them as more than vulnerable, but ultimately doomed And it is, I think, quite sensible then that Jesus would command that his disciples not waste their precious time on an endeavor that will be in the end for naught. Instead, he offers an alternative. Store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. And the wording is a bit tricky for us. If you grew up in the church, the term treasures in heaven is likely something of a platitude used to describe, you know, the outcome of thankless good deeds. Maybe that's just me. I'm from Georgia. You know, uh, we used to say things like, man, cleaning up after the potluck is no fun, but hey, treasures in heaven, you know. Uh, If you haven't grown up in the church, the term is probably just as confusing. But really, this is not a statement about an eventual reward in an afterlife. New Testament scholar N.T. Wright puts it like this. As with other references to heaven and earth, we shouldn't imagine he means, don't worry about this life, get ready for the next one. Heaven here is where God is right now. And where, if you learn to love and serve God right now, you will have treasure in the present, not just in the future. Jesus is not referring to a system of reward in which his disciples will forego the idolatry of money and possessions so that when they die and they float up into the clouds, they will finally have something better. In fact, in Matthew's gospel, the word heaven actually acts as a surrogate for the word God. Jesus is talking about treasures in God, things of internal eternal investment in the here and now, over and against an investment in finite comfort and security and accumulation, having stuff. Your treasure on earth is doomed, but your treasure in God is not. And the text concludes with one of the more famous sayings of Jesus, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And there are a number of ways to render these words very plainly or in ordinary language that you and I understand a bit better. Uh, One such way is the way you spend your money reveals what is most important to you. Or if you'd like to know the true character of a person, look at their bank statement. It is so striking to me because Jesus seems to be pitting two dispositions, one against the other, as if only one can survive, the valuing of money and stuff against the valuing of God. And I would argue he does this intentionally because they cannot coexist. There are things that you believe matter to you, things that when asked you would describe as your value system, your passions, your loves. And perhaps you detail such a list with some accuracy, but a far more revealing way to the truth would be by posing the simple yet terrifying question, how did you spend your money this month? And to wade even further into the deep water, allow me to invite you uh, into a bit of a mental exercise. Now, I'd like to preface the exercise in question with my very sincere insistence that what follows is not in any way a guilt trip. Uh, Really, this is just a shared moment of adjusted perspective that I hope will help us sort out the implications of this text. Now, depending on the study consulted, 
Somewhere over one billion people in the world live on less than one dollar per day. And about three billion live on less than two dollars per day. I'm sure a lot of you have heard that before. Some statistics suggest that as many as 20% of Americans live below what we call our national poverty line. Now with these facts in your mind, consider for a moment your stuff. Consider for a moment the fact that even in a room of this size, it stands to reason that the vast majority of us spent more than $7 this week. Uh, and in most cases, a lot more. I know I did. Many of you arrived here in a car. Uh, many of you own more than one car. Most of you lack a car only by personal preference. Most of your homes have heating, I hope. And the only reason you don't have air conditioning is because of this bizarre, preciously held myth that Pacific West, Northwesterners love to believe that you don't need air conditioning. It's only hot like one day out of the year. No, it's not. It's hot for like four or five months. It's called the summer. It's miserable. We should all have air conditioning. Why are we letting each other believe this horrible lie? <laughs> I've really been out of shape about it. I've been here for years. It doesn't make any sense to me. <laughs> I digress. <laughs> you have laptops, you have smartphones, you have books and movies. I have a, an iPad, I borrowed it from, so I have an iPad in my possession at the moment. Um, we have televisions and streaming subscriptions. You dine at restaurants with some regularity. Some of them are quite nice. You choose from an endless parade of coffee options served at an endless parade of nearly identical coffee shops. You had breakfast and lunch, probably, today. If you didn't, it was by your own volition. Maybe you had snacks. You have many outfits and accessories from which to choose your day's attire. You have an apartment or maybe a home if it's on the outskirts of the city. Or you decorate that home with trinkets. You populate it with furniture and accessories and appliances. Of course, many, if not most of you, have known some level of financial adversity. You've endured challenging seasons or faced debt or pinched pennies. And these are, of course, valid hardships. I realize that in terms of getting by, not all of us have had it easy. I don't mean to discredit or undermine that in any way at all. But there is a difference between most of us and the rest of the world. When most of us talk about being poor, we only mean that we're poor in a context that is already outrageously wealthy compared to most human beings on earth. And that's my point. I, I think it's an important one. Compared to a huge swath of the world population, most of us are rich. And I think the common American tendency is to immediately dismiss ourselves from the discussion around wealth and affluence because the single person or the young family or the college student that's, you know, surviving on ramen or whatever, they imagine themselves poor, though their lifestyle would be considered luxurious to much of the world. The upper class observes the wealthier super rich, and they think of themselves as poor. The middle class observes the upper class, and they think of themselves as poor. And on down the economic ladder it goes. And yet... If you eat food, or have a car, or drive in a car, or live in a home, or frequent restaurants, or decorate your homes, or enjoy basic creature comforts, or even one or two of those things, you are rich by a global standard. Most of us are rich. But the teacher that we follow was not. Like several billion modern residents of earth, Jesus is depicted in the Gospels as having almost nothing at all. What food Jesus eats, he receives by fishing or farming or in most cases donation. Or, you know, he like miraculously produces food in some cases. Uh, when Jesus wants to make a point about money, he has to ask someone else to come and hand him a coin just so he can make the point. 
And of course, Jesus knew what it was like to have plenty. He was exposed to affluence all the time. He visited the homes of other people on a near daily basis. He met and interacted with wealthier Jews and Romans. He sat in their villas. He knew of their plentiful food and luxurious lifestyle and entertainment. Extravagance was not foreign nor unheard of in Jesus' day, but Jesus warned against it. And this is important. As is the case with every radical teaching packed into the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is asking that his apprentices follow in his example, do as he did. Jesus requires simplicity from his followers because he himself exemplified simplicity every single day. Jesus demands that his followers prioritize the poor because he himself was poor. And listen, I realize that Following Jesus does not require slavish imitation. You know, that you will not become like Jesus in every single way. To cite the easiest examples, you know, Jesus was a man. He was a Galilean Jew. He lived in the ancient Near East. Many of you, thankfully, are not dudes. Way to go. Jesus was, we think, a stonemason by trade. I doubt many of you are. Uh, many of us, I venture a guess, in the room tonight are not Jewish. None of us are first century Galileans. Um, all that to say, Jesus' life of deliberate poverty is not necessarily an imitation requirement in the specific sense, but his example of unconcern for wealth is indeed a command for his disciples. Thus, Refraining from storing up treasures on earth does not require that you neglect your responsibilities or not pay your bills or taxes or not provide food for your family or yourself or even, you know, have a savings account, whatever it might be. It's really our understanding of money and stuff and our relationship with it that has to change. And interestingly, there's a, you know, a, a popularized, well-worn living tradition within the modern church that understands financial prosperity as a sign of God's blessing or God's favor and such a notion is hardly new. In fact, Jesus himself was among contemporary rabbis who themselves translated certain passages of the Torah to promise financial gain to obedient children of God. And this is worth mentioning, I think, because Jesus was aware that there were those who believed God wanted his people to be rich. He knew this full well when he stood up and taught that his disciples were to live a lifestyle of simplicity. And if you recall, Jesus doesn't understand himself to be rewriting or undoing the Old Testament. He believes that he is fulfilling the Torah. Jesus believed that the Torah taught a healthy aversion to riches. One such passage from the wisdom literature reads thusly, Do not wear yourself out to get rich. Do not trust your own cleverness. Cast but a glance at riches, and they are gone, for they will surely sprout wings and fly off to the sky like an eagle. And this is just one easy example. We could be here all night. Again and again, the Old Testament warns against the idolatry of money and possessions. It cautions against the dangers of accumulation while simultaneously upholding God's great concern for justice, for the need to distribute excess in order to care for those with very little. And when you begin to study this particular passage from Matthew chapter 6, you see that commentator after commentator notes that built into Jesus' command to pursue treasures in heaven is the idea that in God's economy, those with much should care for those with little. In fact, one scholar I read this week actually makes space in his footnotes to repent of not emphasizing that dimension of the text in an earlier uh, volume of uh, the commentary in question. He wrote this, the most concrete, practical way to have treasure in heaven is to make the life move of economic divestment for the sake of investment in the poor. 
In the first edition, I did not sufficiently stress this liquidation of assets for the sake of the poor meaning of our text. And now I see myself called by the goals, this particular set of teachings, to investigate a new kind of economics. I was called by the earlier commands to investigate a new kind of politics in Matthew chapter 5. Jesus challenges his readers on so many fronts. He is constantly, as the idiom goes, in your face. I thought that was so funny that that guy wrote in your face in a commentary. I could have easily cut that off for time or not talked about it like I'm doing now. But it's really funny to me. So there it is. Jesus' earliest disciples followed in Jesus' example. They actually picked up on Jesus' language and continue to utilize his word imagery. Later, writing elsewhere in the New Testament, this. Now listen, you rich people. Weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on you. Your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the innocent one who was not opposing you. Yikes. What I'm getting at is that the warning against wealth and accumulation and extravagance and luxurious living is well represented in the Bible, in the Old and New Testament. And observing all this, one scholar that I read this week, he looked out on a landscape of affluent Christians that admittedly included himself, and he simply said this, the irony of wealthy followers of Jesus cannot be ignored. So what are you and I to do with this as those by a global standard who are quite rich? Are we to own nothing? Are we to request pay cuts at our jobs or... Um, sell off our belongings and give to the poor, which is something Jesus specifically commanded at least one guy do. Before we end this evening, I'm going to propose a radical shift in our understanding of money and possessions, as well as a few practical methods of embodying this way of life. And I'll begin with just a nice softball. I don't believe disciples of Jesus are permitted to possess anything. Now, before I lose you, I don't believe this means that you cannot legally own things or have bank accounts or homes or so on. Greg Boyd puts it this way. He says, Jesus tells us that unless we give up all our possessions, we cannot be a disciple of his. I don't interpret this to mean that we can't legally own anything since most of the disciples he was speaking to continued to earn money and live in houses. But it does mean we can't consider anything we legally own or any money we legally earn to be our possessions. They belong to God. And as such, we are called to seek his will as to how our wealth should be spent. Now, I do want to be clear that I'm not saying uh, a popular way of putting this, which is, hey, listen, it's not your money and your possessions that are a problem at all. It's just your disposition toward them. Actually, I would argue that money and possessions are dangerously problematic. Uh, One theologian put things just as plainly, writing this, to be rich and a disciple of Jesus is to have a problem. Christians, particularly in capitalist social orders, are told that it's not wealth or power that's the problem, but rather we must be good stewards of our wealth and power. However, Jesus is very clear, wealth is a problem. Uh, Scottish philosopher Alcidair McIntyre observed the same thing and wrote, Riches are, from a biblical point of view, an affliction, an almost insuperable obstacle in entering the kingdom of heaven. 
And he is, of course, drawing on a quotation of Jesus. How hard it is for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. I believe that there's this strange paradox to which the disciple of Jesus must aspire. To live as though one has nothing, even if they have very much. To keep the things you own from owning you, you have to let them go. It's only after we've lost everything that we're free to do anything. And here's what I mean. Uh, For about a decade of my life... Oh, this sounds so dumb after Alex's horrible introduction. I used to drive around playing music. And during my travels, I happened to meet this fellow in Southern California. We used to often just say, hey, can we sleep on people's floor tonight? And uh, he had learned of our humble lifestyle of living in a van and surviving on $5 a day, which is really what we did. And this gentleman invited us to stay in his home. And we'd never met him. The only thing he knew about us was that we had immediate need of a floor on which to sleep. And he was not what you would call a poor person. Uh, he lived in this enormous three-story home with a text, you know, within a textbook Californian suburb. His home was extravagant. He had this ornate stone jacuzzi complete with his, you know, its own television. He had a garage full of cars and motorcycles and scooters. He, he drove a Hummer. Uh, the first time I ever set foot in this guy's house, he, he, he didn't even know my name at this point. He and his wife immediately set to work preparing this elaborate dinner. He handed me the keys to his car and a big wad of cash. And he said, why don't you guys go out and have fun, go see a movie, whatever it is. And here's the security code so that you can get back into my house when you're done. And then when we eventually left, after he had just showered us with all kinds of generosity, he said to me specifically, hey, listen, if you know anyone that has need of my house and my stuff, give them my phone number and tell them to call me. And I did. And they called him, and he did the same thing for them. Ordinarily, the things that you own end up owning you. But this guy, though he had done quite well in, I think, you know, landscaping and masonry, he seemed uninterested in the preciousness of his things beyond that he could share them with strangers. And I have come to believe that most of us cannot aspire to this level of freedom. Most of us should probably reject wealth because we understand that it takes a unique person to be free of their belongings. And not everyone can do that. A couple of you guys can. You can be like that gentleman I just mentioned. But most of us, I believe, probably can't. Most of us, I would venture a guess, care deeply about our finances and about our things. And this is typically evidenced in our complaining about not having enough of either. When my wife and I were first married, our entire monthly budget for everything was $500 thereabouts. Uh, I didn't make much as a musician and an author, but the cost of living in Georgia was quite low, so we spent our nominal income on groceries and rent and basic utilities, and then it was gone. And we didn't, you know, go out to eat or do fun fun things that cost money anyway, uh, or buy things ever, period. And this went on for a couple of years. But not only were we happy, we honestly hardly thought about money at all. It came in, it served its purpose, and then it was gone. And years later, I landed a more traditional gig uh, working at a church. And suddenly, I was aware of what other people were paid and how it contrasted my own income. And I could buy things for the first time. And this only served to remind me of the things that I couldn't buy. And so, I propose there's probably an equation at work here for most of us. It goes something (laughs) like this. Increase of money and possessions equals increase of concern for money and possessions. Increase of concern for money and possessions equals decrease of contentment with money and possessions. Or alternately, it can go this way. Decrease of money and possessions can equal decrease of concern for money and possessions. 
Decrease of concern for money and possessions equals contentment with money and possessions. The more you own, the harder it is to free yourself from it. It's not impossible, but it's very difficult. This is why I assume most of us are completely unprepared for the kind of generosity I describe exemplified by that fellow I met in California. Because we think, well, sure, it's easy to be generous when you have it all. When you're rich and you've got this huge house and all this stuff, of course you would be generous. But let me propose to you an ironclad test of how you would handle more than you have right now. If you are not generous with little, you will not be generous with much. Whatever your season of financial stability or lack thereof, if you do not live in such a way that your money and your possessions are not yours, you will not live that way if you have more of them. In all likelihood, you will exemplify less generosity the more that you acquire. The key is, I think, letting it go. And when I thought about examples of, besides this fellow that I met, um, of people who found a way to let go, often stories of different types of artists came to mind. They are a people group that I think understand the corrupting power of money um, more often than not. If you're like me and you're a child of the 80s, you probably remember one of the century's greatest works of art, which was a comic strip called Calvin and Hobbes. Oh, okay, great. You're the first one to be truly responsive to that. Calvin and Hobbes... Uh, was a newspaper strip, that, that uh, comic strip. It ran from 1985 to 1995. And during the strip's decade tenure, and really some 20 years after it, it endures as the subject of broad popularity and influence and academic interest. It's displayed in museums. It's an incredible work of art. At the helm of the comic strip was reclusive genius Bill Watterson. And he, he rarely granted interviews or did press or appeared in any sort of public outlet whatsoever. There's two existing photographs of him. Not unlike other popular comic strips at the time, or even, I don't know, maybe now still, Garfield or Peanuts or what have you, Calvin and Hobbes was published in newspapers around the world by a syndicate. And given the incredible popularity and enthusiasm for the strip, the syndicate was understandably interested in licensing Calvin and Hobbes for merchandising purposes. But Bill Watterson rejected the idea with utmost contempt. Eventually, he prepared to quit the strip, even though the syndicate could legally replace him with a new cartoonist and take his creation from him. Of the ongoing debacle, Bill Watterson wrote this. To put the problem simply, trainloads of money were at stake. Millions and millions of dollars could be made with a few signatures. Most cartoonists are more than eager for the exposure, wealth, and prestige that licensing offers. When cartoonists fight their syndicates, it's usually to make more money, not less. By the strip's fifth year, the debate had gone as far as it could possibly go, and I prepared to quit. If I could not control what Calvin and Hobbes stood for, the strip was worthless to me. At this point, the syndicate agreed to renegotiate my contract. The exploitation rights to the strip were returned to me, and I will not license Calvin and Hobbes. This means that any merchandising you've ever seen is an illegal bootleg. It has never actually been authentically and legally merchandised, period. And I realize that sounds like a funny story to stick in the middle of this teaching, but I do it as kind of a psychological test. Ask yourself, does that story inspire or frustrate you? Because I've often told the story of Bill Wetterson to folks, and they say, he's a lunatic, Joker's out of his mind. It gets weirder, too. At one point, someone sent uh, Bill Watterson uh, some prototypes of a Hobbes doll. Hobbes is a tiger in the comic strip. Just to say, look how cool it could be. Look how, like, perfect in the attention to detail. He set them on fire and sent them back. <laughs> so, he's very punk rock. Now, 
I mention that because I think when you ask yourself, is that admirable or is it foolish? This is a man who, regardless of the context or what he had going on or whether or not he even followed Jesus, he understood that the luxury of wealth comes at a great price. And he was unwilling to pay it. Oh, that we, as disciples of Jesus, would understand that conviction and that resolve. Because at the heart of this new relationship that Jesus' disciples will have with money and possessions is a letting go, a bottoming out, a liberation from the tentacles of stuff. And of course, this is easier said than done. It seems to me that such a thing takes time, and you probably guessed that it takes practice as well. So to end tonight, I want to offer a few pragmatic pieces we might use to follow in Jesus' In Jesus' example. The first is, own nothing for display and display nothing you own. By this, I don't mean that, you know, you should reject interior design if that's your thing or, you know, that a framed picture of your family is evil or something like that. I do mean that you should adamantly reject the desire to showcase your money and your things. Some scholars note the connection of Jesus' teaching on money to his previous trio of warnings, if you recall, against generosity and prayer and fasting done for the acclaim of people rather than God. So in this sense, it isn't just the danger of treasure against which Jesus commands. It's also the desire for the sort of acclaim that comes from having money and having stuff. In other words, Jesus is saying to his disciples, you cannot desire and pursue treasure on earth, but also you cannot desire being noticed for your treasure on earth. And of course, you realize in our context that the world of social media exists largely for the direct purpose of being noticed for your treasures on earth. The musty cellar floor of social media is a sinister cesspool of insecurity and dishonesty. Oh, the sparkly world of beautiful families and photogenic children and incredible vacations and nice, neat little possessions and poses and delicious dinners and affectionate parents and perfect friendships and flowery language and gorgeous landscapes and cute outfits and also naturally candid and equally flattering poses. It is, of course, a scam. A lie, a wash. Too much? You don't. <laughs> I went too far with that one. All right, Bill Watterson. Hey, Calvin and Hobbes. You guys like that one, right? There we go. <laughs> Recently, uh, my wife and I were just having this. Uh, casual conversation, she, she mentioned something that struck me, and she wasn't trying to be as cruel as I was just being, but she said, man, I wonder how differently people might shop if they were somehow forbidden from posting their purchases on Instagram. When and if you do have money and things, you will never develop a healthy indifference to and detachment from those things if you are concerned with other people seeing them. And this leads me to my next suggestion. Spend more on others than you do on yourself. I mentioned earlier that my wife, Abby, and I, we once led a decidedly simple lifestyle because that's all we had. Uh, we, when we found ourselves in a season of options, things suddenly became complicated. We never went out to eat or bought things for ourselves simply because we used all our money to pay for rent and groceries, and then it was gone. So what do you do when you pay your bills, and for the first time you discovered, well, there's money to spare. What will happen to this money? Years ago, we sat down together, and we decided that we would like to set a budget, which is a good thing. You should try it. 
For the first time in our lives, we decided that we would budget for what we, you know, called like an allowance it was, uh, so that we could buy for ourselves things and do things that we hadn't done before, go out to eat or see a movie occasionally or buy the occasional thing. And we set a specific dollar amount for this. But to curb that luxury, luxury, we set a second dollar amount much higher than the first, and that money we spent on other people for, you know, our church or a sponsor kit or several charities that we like or, you know, even just treating the occasional friend to a meal or to a cup of coffee, whatever it might be. And maybe to some of you that sounds noble, but really our need to do such a thing became immediately evident when for the first time I could buy something for myself and I was almost immediately frustrated by my inability to buy more. Our budget forced us to confront what was inside. It had just been dormant before, and when it came to the surface, we had to find a way to suffocate it. So we imposed limitations so that we could actually point to a quantifiable number and know that we'd given more than we had allowed to take for ourselves. And soon, when we'd begun to do that, traces of the old lifestyle, a time when we were far more content with far less, began to creep back in. And then we found ourselves with extra stuff that we realized we no longer needed. And that's my next suggestion. Get rid of stuff. Uh, and get rid of things that you don't want to get rid of but should. When you restrict yourself from excess, you realize that excess is not only useless, it's actually a bummer. It complicates your life. Uh, my, my disposition by nature is materialistic. My tastes are specific, sure, but I'm really materialistic just the same. So I like to buy and own uh, like movies and books and records and things. And left to my own devices, I do so excessively. Now, owning uh, a movie or an album or a book is not inherently sinful, per se, but materialism becomes a cruel cycle because the more I had, the more seduced I became with the prospect of having. And I admired my own collections. I wanted them to be admired by other people. I wanted to be known as the guy with a million movies and a big library and a big collection of beautiful records. And realizing this, I decided that in order to break the spell my possessions had cast on me, I needed to get rid of stuff. And I imposed on myself a much stricter rubric for when and if I might actually buy something. I doubt I, I could have done such a thing without first undergoing the shock therapy of purging a ton of stuff that I did not want to get rid of. Uh, I've never been what uh, many of you might call a fashionable fellow, but there was a time when I enjoyed and sought after my own version of a desirable wardrobe. And when I realized the stock that I had placed on my clothes, I decided to get rid of them all and narrow my closet to a single outfit. And that's not because I'm so above materialism, it's because I am susceptible to it. See, minimalism as a fad, as a hip aesthetic is fine, but it will only carry you so far. Fads, like possessions themselves, are perishable. And if you are compelled to give up money and possessions because it will make your house cuter or because it affords you a new subculture with which to identify, you are simply replacing the love of treasures on earth with the love of a trend, which is also a new kind of treasure on earth, a new idolatry. Breaking the hold that your stuff has on you offers a unique perspective. One can finally step back to see all they have is not only fleeting, but ultimately not yours at all which is my next tip. Treat your belongings as though they weren't yours. Disciples of Jesus believe that everything belongs to God. 
I don't believe personally that everything that happens is determined by God, including your economic status. But I do believe that in the language of the scriptures, there are times when uh, God gifts people with stuff. Every good and perfect gift is from above in the language of the scriptures. And as we mentioned earlier, these gifts have a built-in expectation of generosity. God's concern in giving is not that you would have. It's that you would do as he does and give Give it away. He gave it to you, and then you give it away. If you have more than you need, while making no effort to redistribute that excess to those in need, I believe it's kind of like you're stealing from your brothers and sisters who have nothing. Thus the great tension of having and giving. Again, this from Greg Boyd. He writes, kingdom economics, receive blessings without any guilt and share blessings without any reservations. Finally, to end tonight, I want to remind us that Jesus contrasts his prohibition against storing up treasure on earth with the command to instead store up treasure in heaven. On the nature of these alternate treasures, Dallas Willard writes this, the treasures we have in heaven is also something very much available to us now. We can and should draw upon it as needed, for it is nothing less than God himself and the wonderful society of his kingdom interwoven in my life. What is most valuable for any human being without regard to an afterlife is to be a part of this marvelous reality, God's kingdom now. If I had to choose between good credit with a bank and good credit with God, I would not hesitate a moment. By all means, let the bank go. How do you store up treasure in heaven? To practice the way of Jesus is to store up treasure in heaven, to invest in generosity rather than greed, to deliberately choose simplicity when excess feels more natural and feels more desirable, to prioritize the spiritual disciplines over shopping, to spend more time in prayer than you would staging the perfect photo of some new outfit or little thing that you bought. All of this is what it means to deliberately store up treasure in heaven rather than on earth. And maybe for some of you in your wiring, your season of life, the idea of like wild shopping or fabricating a life on Instagram is not exactly a pressing temptation. Maybe that's just not your crowd or your, not your preference or your bag, your generation, whatever it might be. Maybe for you, the lure is comfort and security. Maybe the lure is nicer things, luxury, stability. And the beautiful, albeit frightening, invitation of Jesus is to give all that up in favor of something better. The way of Jesus is not lucrative. It's not comfortable. It's not a promising route to safety and security. In fact, Jesus repeatedly assures his disciples that should they actually take up with him, they could likely face poverty and persecution and discomfort and danger and distress, but they will know God and they will be known by God. And in this, they will have treasure so precious, so valuable that it will expose all our clamoring for more money and more stuff and more recognition as the futile charade it truly is. It's only after we've lost everything that we're free to do anything. I want to close by reading a very short parable of Jesus over you guys tonight. It appears later in Matthew's gospel, Jesus describes a person who has seen a glimpse of God's coming kingdom, and he says this, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. 
When a man found it, he hid it again. And then in his joy, he went and sold all he had and bought that field. May we find that treasure, God. May we forfeit all we have to gain it. Amen. Let's pray together and invite God's Spirit to come and speak over us this evening.